Hey folks, JR, back for another episode of Echoes of Shannon Street Case File. It's going to be episode 65, Anti-Police. Alright folks, we're going to continue the investigation. Now, they've finished up the scene description in the house for the most part. What we're going to see now is follow-up investigation because there's still a lot the police have to do. We're going to get into that without further ado. Memphis Police Department Supplemental Offense Report. This is going to be on the criminal homicide. It's dated January 13, 1983. Victim, R.S. Hester. Ryder was contacted by Lieutenant Rick Wilson at 3.40 a.m. on Thursday, January 13, 1983. Lieutenant Wilson stated that Patrolman Hester was dead on the scene and requested the writer to come to the Shannon address. The writer arrived on the scene at 4.23 a.m. Scene address was 2239 Shannon, which is the fourth house west of Boxwood on the south side of the street. The writer met Lieutenant Rick Wilson, Sergeant J.M. King, and Sergeant John Garner. Lieutenant Wilson requested the writer to go to the city of Memphis Hospital Morgue for photographs and body chart. Lieutenant Wilson stated that Sergeant Torrance Landers of the police security squad was en route to the city of Memphis Hospital. Now that's Sergeant J.M. King. He was an inspector later on. I worked for him. The writer arrived at the city of Memphis Hospital morgue at 5 a.m. and met Sergeant Landers of the police shoot team. Sergeant Landers had made eight colored Polaroids of Patrolman Hester dressed in his uniform. Pictures I have of Officer Hester in the uniform. These were given to the writer. Sergeant Landers stated that he also had taken two rolls of 35 millimeter pictures. Sergeant Landers also stated he had made body charts. Sergeant Landers then went to Methodist Central Hospital to have consent for the autopsy paper signed by Patrolman Hester's wife. How unpleasant that would be. Sergeant Landers also had Patrolman Hester's clothes and personal property. It should be noted that Patrolman Hester did have a gold wedding band on his left hand that would not come off. At 5.15 a.m., the writer took additional Polaroid photographs of Patrolman Hester's injuries. At 5.30 a.m., Captain Josh Randall arrived at the morgue and identified the body of Patrolman Hester and signed the morgue book. At 6.35 a.m., the writer, while in the violent crimes office, turned in the eight RNIs for this offense. So when it says eight RNIs, that means that's eight report numbers. The R and I on Patrolman Hester is 83012672, which if you look, folks, the first two numbers are the year, next two numbers are the month, and then you have the day of the week. The following seven R and I numbers from 2673 through 2679 are for the seven unknown male blacks. At 6.58 a.m., the writer went to the Communications Bureau and taped the call times and scene times of the original call to 2239 Shannon. The writer also obtained a copy of the call cards 
showing call times, scene time, and time officers called for help. Captain Lewis of the Violent Crimes Office advised the writer that in custody was a male black T.C. Smith who had been at the two the 2239 Shannon address at the time the police officers arrived. Captain Lewis requested the writer to bring T.C. Smith to the Violent Crimes Office to determine the possible names of the seven victims. The writer checked T.C. Smith out of detention at 8.50 a.m. and brought him to the Violent Crimes Office. Sergeant Anderson gave the Miranda warnings to T.C. Smith at 8 a.m., on Thursday, January 13, 1983, T.C. Smith stated he understood these rights and did sign a waiver acknowledging his understanding of these rights at 9.01 a.m. All right, so let me, I guess that time I stated 8 a.m. So when they brought him up, let's, that should be 9 a.m., I guess. T.C. Smith stated that he was at Lindbergh Sanders' home this past Tuesday, January 11, 1983, he stated that a Michael Coleman was also at this location and that Michael Coleman telephoned the police, stating that the police had been by, been by this address looking for him for snatching a purse. T.C. Smith further stated Michael Coleman told the police on the phone he would like a squad car to come by so they could get it straightened out. T.C. Smith was present at 2239 Shannon when the squad car arrived. Mr. Smith stated the police had decided to arrest Michael Coleman. At this point, Lindbergh at this point, Lindbergh, comma, Smith told the officers that if they arrested Michael Coleman, they would have to arrest everyone in the house. TC Smith stated he knew that Lindbergh Sanders did not like the police at all and new trouble was evident. T.C. Smith stated he went out the back door of the house, and as he exited the back door, he heard shots being fired. He then went home. Mr. T.C. Smith further stated that he has known Lindbergh Sanders to use violence on members in the past. He stated they would beat them, I should be, he would beat them with a stick when they failed to follow his instructions. T.C. Smith stated that to the best of his memory, the male blacks that were at Lindbergh Sanders' home on Tuesday, January 11, 1983, was Lindbergh Sanders, Michael Coleman, Cassell Harris, male black known to him only as Earl, a male black known to him as Juju, a David Lee, and Larnell Sanders, Linnell Sanders, who is Lindbergh's son. T.C. Smith stated a... Peter Murphy was also there, but that he had spoken to Peter Murphy yesterday, and Peter Murphy had gotten away out of the house some way or the other. T.C. Smith stated he was unknown about a male black known as Neil being there, was not sure if Tyrone was there, and did not know Joe Namath. Well, what a shame. I wonder if that's the Joe Namath. Anyways, at 9.35 a.m., a type statement was being taken from T.C. Smith. At approximately 10.10 a.m., Mr. A.C. Wharton 
of the Public Defender's Office and later to become the mayor of Shelby County and the mayor of the city of Memphis, came to the Violent Crimes Office and spoke to T.C. Smith. Mr. Wharton was under the impression that T.C. Smith was charged with two criminal offenses. The writer stated that he was unaware of any charges against Mr. Smith, and the writer was in the process at that time of taking a witness statement from Mr. Smith. Mr. Wharton was allowed to talk to T.C. Smith. At 10.20 a.m., T.C. Smith stated to the writer in the presence of A.C. Wharton that he had no further statements to make at this time. At this time, no further questions were asked, and T.C. Smith was returned to the detention area and signed back in at 10 a.m. by the writer. Uh, see, folks, that this part right here, just another time, it just infuriates me. The, why in the world investigators try, try and investigate a homicide, in fact, eight homicides, and you're going to let a defense attorney saunter up into the violent crimes office, and you're actually going to allow him to go talk to the defendant. See, folks, you, as a defendant, you have a constitutional right to request an attorney, and you don't have to give a statement if you don't want to without your attorney being present. That's your constitutional right. However, the defense attorney does not have a constitutional right to request to see a defendant. There is no constitutional right for that. What they should have told Mr. Wharton was, well, he hasn't requested an attorney and we'll see you later. And you escort him out of the office. In fact, you don't even let him get into the office. They'll sit out in the little... There's a little waiting room right outside the violent crimes office and the robbery office. You have them sit out there. You find out what they want. Nope, sorry, he hadn't requested an attorney. We'll see you later. We've actually arrested attorneys before who tried to bogart up into the office and forcefully get into a, a room with a uh, defendant. So anyways, just jot that down somewhere. Defense attorneys do not have a constitutional right to see a defendant. The defendant has a constitutional right to request an attorney. Just prior to the type statement, T.C. Smith was shown seven colored Polaroid photographs of the seven deceased male blacks. He was asked to identify these male blacks. He identified the photographs as follows. Photograph A1, Lionel Sanders. Photograph B2, Michael Coleman. Photograph C3, David Jordan. Photograph D4, Cassell Harris, photograph E5, Earl Thomas, photograph F6, Lindbergh Sanders, and photograph G7, Mel Black, known as Juju. At 9.45 a.m. on January 13, 1983, the writers were in the violent crimes office and were given a list of names of seven male blacks, possible, which were possibly the suspect shot and killed in the residence at 2239 Shannon this date. That list included Lindbergh Sanders, Larnell Sanders, David Jordan, Cassell Harris, Michael Coleman, Julius Riley, a.k.a. Red, Earl Thomas, and another male black known only by the name Juju. 
the writers were advised by Captain Lewis to attempt to locate the next akin of those subjects and obtain signatures on post-mortem papers. The writer advised that the wife of Lindbergh Sanders and the mother of Larnell Sanders was a male black, Dorothy Sanders, whose address is unknown, but whose brother is Tommy Macklin at 2313 Dexter Avenue, Telephone 4520538. Writers were further advised that David Jordan was the son of a female black, Jacqueline Johnson, home address 594 Somerville, Apartment C, Telephone 522-0356. The writer telephoned that number and found that number to be an error as it was the telephone number of the payroll office at St. Jude Hospital. Upon calling that number, the writer was advised that Jacqueline Johnson was not employed at St. Jude Hospital. Writers were advised that Cassell Harris was believed to reside on Breedlove Street behind the sundry address unknown. Michael Coleman was believed to reside at 630 North 7th Street, Apartment A, telephone number 529-8130. That could be 38. Address on Julius Riley and Juju Johnson were unknown. The writer was advised by Sergeant Bolden of the Violent Crimes Bureau that a female black, Annie Thomas, had telephoned the office stating that she believed her brother, Earl Thomas, was one of the seven involved in the incident. Miss Thomas gave an address of 2498 Vandale, telephone 327-5795. At 9.54 a.m., the writer telephoned Betty Coleman, the mother of Michael Coleman, 630 North 7th Street, apartment A, 529-8138. Miss Coleman advised that she was the mother of the victim and was advised that she would be picked up and transported to the morgue for identification purposes. What a horrible thing to have to do. Not only to have to go get her, but have to be there with her when she looks at her son all shot to pieces. I hate it doing those, by the way. That's a terrible thing to take somebody down there and let them identify their next of kin who have died by violent means. That, that's nasty work. Nasty work. I hate doing that. At 9.45 a.m., the writer telephoned Annie Thomas at 2498 Vandale, phone 327-5795. Miss Thomas advised that she was a sister of Earl Thomas and would go with the officers to the morgue to identify the body. She stated that her mother, Mary Lee Thomas, was at the home and would stand by to sign the autopsy papers. 10.32 a.m. on January 13, 1983, the writers proceeded to 2498 Vandale, the home of Earl Thomas. The officers were met by Annie Thomas, female black, 26, and Albert Thomas, male black, 29, the sister and brother of Earl Thomas. Both subjects resided at the Vandell address. The officers proceeded to the morgue at the City of Memphis Hospital, and at 10.41 a.m., Annie Thomas and Albert Thomas positively identified the body of Earl Thomas, who is designated by the number E5, Echo 5, as being their brother. The writers transported Annie and Albert Thomas to their home at 2496 Vandale, and Mary Lee Thomas did sign the 
autopsy papers. By the way, the uh, the room where you take them into the to view the bodies at the morgue, at least when I was doing it, by that time the morgue was on Madison, but they used to, uh, the little area you'd take them to and it had a little window and they would wheel the uh, gurney over by the glass, had a sheet covering the body and then they would pull the sheet back and the person would look through the glass and identify the body. It used to have furniture in there, but it got where relatives were taking the furniture and crushing the walls and everything else. Now they took the furniture out, or at least they did it while I was still over there because they got tired of having to replace the walls. While en route to the Vandale address to return Annie Thomas to that location, the writer did interview her, and she stated that her brother had left their home and had gone to the 2239 Shannon address on Friday, January 7, 1983. She stated that her brother was a follower of Lindbergh Sanders and did believe that the world was going to end on January 10 of 1983. She stated that they had no contact with him since that time, but his girlfriend, Margie Evans, whose address and telephone number were not known by Miss Thomas, had advised her via telephone on January 13, 1983, that she had talked to Earl Thomas on Monday, and he had telephoned her from the Shannon address. Miss Evans advised Annie Thomas that Earl Thomas had whispered to her on the phone that he was a shepherd overlooking the flock and was waiting for the moon to drip with the red color of blood to signal the end of the world. Mrs. Evans stated that she had no contact with Earl Thomas after that date. Miss Thomas further added that she believed that two male blacks who may have left the scene at 2239 Shannon shortly after the officer was taken hostage was Reginald McCray, who was her brother-in-law, and a second male black known only to her by the name of Pete. Annie Thomas stated that Reginald McCray is her brother-in-law and that he advised her on January 12, 1983, that he had been interviewed by the police at the Shannon School and released without being arrested. The writer could not verify that information. At 11.55 a.m. on January 13, 1983, the writers proceeded to 6.30 North 7th Street, Apartment A, the home to Betty Coleman, and did transport Betty Coleman, the mother of Michael Coleman, and Dorothy Campbell of 553 North 5th, Apartment 2, the aunt of Michael Coleman, to the John Gaston Hospital morgue. How, just, oh, my God. That would have been horrible. A mother should not see their son in that condition. 12.10 p.m. on January 13, 1983, Dorothy Campbell, and of Michael Coleman, did identify the body positively of Michael Coleman. At 12.14 p.m., while at the city of Memphis Hospital Morgue, Betty Coleman did sign the autopsy papers on her son, Michael Coleman. At 12.25 p.m. on January 13, 1983, the writer interviewed Charlie May Houston, female black, 1686 Pope, 452, the rest of the numbers cut off. Miss Charlie May Houston stated she was the mother of Andrew Houston and believed him to be one of the subjects shot at 2239 Shannon. 
The writer asked Miss Houston if her son had a nickname, at which time she replied that they called him Juju. The writer then advised Miss Houston that he did believe that the unidentified subject in the morgue was nicknamed Juju. Sergeant B. Wheeler of the security squad was at the John Gaston morgue and did take over the investigation and further identification of the bodies and obtaining of the post-mortem papers. All previously signed autopsy consent forms were turned over to Sergeant Wheeler. Betty Coleman and Dorothy Campbell were returned to 630 North 7th Apartment A by the writers, who, returning to that location, the writers attempted to interview both subjects regarding Michael Coleman. Both Miss Coleman and Miss Campbell were reluctant to talk to the investigators, but, and I cannot read that name, something Coleman, did state that her son was anti-white, but she had never heard him state anything about being anti-police or make any reference to the police being the devil or anti-Christ. She stated that her son had never been in trouble with the law except for being returned home after curfew when he was a juvenile. She stated that she had been involved in the religion for approximately four months, and she stated she had talked to Lindbergh Sanders on the telephone before but had never met him. And then the writers returned to the violent crimes office and advised Captain Lewis. All right, folks, that's going to wrap up this episode Appreciate y'all tuning in. As you can see, there's a lot of work investigators have to do, that the police have to do with a case. It's not just simply cleaning up the bodies and everybody go home. Talking about weeks and weeks of follow-up work. In this particular case, of course, you're going to have evidence sent off the TBI, so you're talking about months. All right, folks, I do appreciate you, as always. We'll have another episode in a few days. Other than that, as always, I will see you down the road.